Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Scared me for a second. I thought I was the special music. I was trying to think what song I know. (laughs) Don't you love celebrating freedom? I love celebrating freedom. I love our country. It's just a... You know, what a blessing it is. I was born in the greatest country that ever was, and I was born in the, in the greatest part of the greatest country that, was, that ever was in the South. I'm just so glad my dad got tired of being cold in Indiana, met a Texas girl named Sarah, and wound up raising me in Texas. It was uh, something I had nothing to do over. So I love freedom, and I love celebrating freedom. I just wish more people were free. That's the sad thing that we have to realize is this flag that we love to wave gives us the opportunity for freedom, but it doesn't give us freedom because the only place to find freedom is in Jesus Christ. And more specifically in His Word, John 8, 31 says, if you abide in my word, then you will know the truth. If you abide in my word, that is, even if you're a believer, if you don't abide in my word, you're not going to know the truth And it's the truth that sets us free. It's that liberating aspect of knowing the teaching of Christ that sets us free. And he says, in the Spirit, there is liberty. So when we walk in the Spirit, in the Word of God, we enjoy the freedom that comes through that relationship. And that's the only place real freedom comes. And so you can live in America, and you can wave the stars and stripes, and you can celebrate Independence Day, and yes, we are independent, and we do have opportunity for freedom, but without Christ, you're never going to really be free. And I think that's why people today are so sad and demoralized and depressed and in despair. I think that's a direct evidence of the lack of personal freedom in their lives. And it, the opposite ought to be true for those of us who know Christ, who have been set free. And so we're talking about joy which should be the manifestation of the Spirit's work in our life. Joy, and our text is Philippians chapter 2. So let's go there, if you will, and let's look at Philippians chapter 2 again today. i got to get my cert out because I thought there was special music and thought I had time to finish. (laughs) Here's what we've learned so far about joy. First of all, joy is a choice. Remember, Paul is writing to this church in a town called Philippi. I know Philippians sounds like a, a weird word. And, you know, if you're still looking for Philippians, just always when you go to the New Testament, the letters of Paul, just think GE Power Company, okay? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and you'll get there, right? So Philippians is a book written to a town called Philippi, which was named after a fellow named Philip, who happened to be the father of Alexander the Great. Um, and so there's a church there, and it's a, it's a letter of joy. But Paul is in prison when he's writing it. And so to write about joy is to demonstrate that joy is not circumstantial. Joy is a choice. In fact, joy is an act of faith. You show me your joy, and I'll show you your faith. And because of that, joy is enduring, whereas happiness comes and goes. We've learned that. And last time we started looking at complete joy. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Make My joy complete, he says. Paul had that resilient joy of faith. But you know, sometimes we want more than just that gritty, determined faith. 
that says, okay, I'm going to have to resolve to be joyful even when I don't feel it. Sometimes we want the feelings of joy to accompany the faith of joy. And when that occurs in our lives, we call that complete joy. And so I would say this, that complete joy happens when the faith of joy unites with the feelings of joy. And so here's the question for us today as we further explore this, because we just sort of danced across it last week, but I want to drill down on it a little bit today, and I want to really examine what it is that Paul says following that, because he gives us the insights to how that can happen and how that experience of joy can really follow us throughout our lives. What can I do to experience complete joy? I mean, is it just one of these things that like happiness comes and goes in my life? Or are there some things that I can do that will contribute to those feelings of joy that will allow me to experience in the fullest possible way? And I believe there are. And and, and maybe this will help. I was thinking about what an analogy might be that would help you to understand how joy really works. Let's compare emotional health to financial health, okay? When you talk about finances, there are always two sides to the financial equation, right? There's the income side, and there's the expense side. And we all know that if our expenses exceed our income, then we have what? A financial deficit. What do we call that? We call that debt. Anytime my expenses exceed my income, I'm going to deal with a financial deficit. And it really doesn't matter how much you make. If you spend more than you make, you will always be broke. There's no question about it. You can make a million dollars a day, but if you spend a million and one dollars a day, you're going to be broke. That's how guys who are fabulously wealthy on the income side of things, uh, celebrities that we see wind up in bankruptcy and going broke. You see people who win the lottery and you go, next thing you know, they're filing for bankruptcy. And it's like, how in the world did that happen? Well, they spent more than they made. It's, it's pretty simple stuff. You spend more than you make, you're going to go broke. And so when people have financial problems, they always want to focus on the income side of the problem, right? If I only had more money, then I wouldn't have this problem. And that's true for some people because especially today, especially with inflation, there are a lot of people who are underemployed. And the truth is, there's way too much month left at the end of their money, and it's very, very difficult for them to balance that sheet because it's hard to make ends meet. And I, I get that. I've been there myself. In fact, I spent a good bit of my married life there um, trying to figure out how we're going to get to the end of the month with the amount of money that we have. And so there was an income problem, and some people quite honestly have that. But the truth of it is that in reality, most of the problems with personal finance happen on the expense side. Um, Because most of the time, working on the income side will not solve your debt problem. You say, why? You know why. Because the more you make, the more you spend. And so when your income goes up, what happens? Ah, baby, we can afford the bass boat, right? Well, no, you can afford groceries, So go ahead and buy the groceries and let's put the bass boat off for a a little while longer. You see what I'm saying? And and so what we always do is whenever the uh, income goes up, the expenses tend to go up in, in, in proportion to that. And so almost always the solution to financial problems is to work on the expense side. And that's what Dave Ramsey's all about. He's all about bringing down expenses to come under income. Somebody told me one time, they said the richest person is not the person that has the most, it's the one who needs the least. 
The richest person is not the one who has the most, it's the one who needs the least. And until you arrive at that point, you're always going to struggle with a financial deficit, no matter how much you make. Now, your emotional health is very similar to your financial health. There are two sides to the emotional equation. There's the expectation side. Think of that as the expense side. And then there's the experience side of emotional health. Think of that as the income side. And here's what I would say. If your expectations exceed your experience, then you will always run an emotional deficit. And when people live with emotional deficits, their expectations exceed their experience, then they struggle with joy. Debt is the word that we use to describe a financial deficit. But sadness, depression, despair, unhappiness, those are the words that we use to describe an emotional deficit. And so the answer is the same. You've got to deal with the expense side. But we don't want to do that. Most people want to focus on the experience side of the problem, which is like focusing on the income side of a financial problem. And here's what they'll always say. If I only had a better experience, then I would find real joy. And so they began to look for happiness. And I can't tell you how many people in in struggling marriages, rather than working on the expense side of the problem, which is expectations, they always want to work on the income side, which is personal experience. And so they say, she's just not making me happy. Well, I've got some bad news, fella. There ain't anybody can make you happy. There ain't anybody can make her happy. But what happens as a result is we're trying to solve our emotional deficit by running to this and that experience, trying to improve our experience, which is exactly like trying to solve your financial problems by increasing your income. And it just doesn't work that way. you got to bring down your emotional expenses so that your experience exceeds your expectations. And the key to that is not on the income side. It's not on the experience side. It's by reducing the expectations. And that's exactly what Philippians 2 is about. In fact, this is what the New Testament, when it speaks to relationships, always comes back around to, and that is your personal expectations. In marriage, what are your expectations? Well, my expectations are for that person to do what I want, right? That's the way we always couch it. In Ephesians 5, The men always like to talk about 522, right? Um, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. They skip right over 21. Submit therefore one to another in the fear of Christ, right? Because we have to realize that we don't want to deal with our own expectations. But in, in Philippians 2, the Spirit leads us to deal with the expectation side of the emotional problem. If you want to experience complete joy, then you have to change your expectations, It's just exactly like bringing down your expenses. You say, well, how do I do that? How do I change my expectations? I think, first of all, you have to realize that your expectations are the problem. Your expectations are the problem. Um, James chapter 4, let me paraphrase it for you. What's What's the source of problems in your relationships? He says the, pro- the source of problems in your relationships is that you want and you lust, but you don't have it. So you have fights and you have conflicts because you're trying to get what you want and the other person's trying to get what they want. And the consequence of that is conflict. And the outcome of that is sadness. He said, you, you want what you want, but you don't get it because you don't ask. 
And when, you, and when you ask, you don't get it, he says, because you ask with the wrong motives, because all you want is what you want. You want to spin it on yourself. And so from that, we have to realize that the source of the problem is our expectations. You say, well, how do I change those? Well, he tells us exactly. Keep reading Philippians chapter 2. Look at your Bible. Look at it carefully. He says, first of all, in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness. And that word selfishness is an interesting word in the original. It's only found prior to the New Testament in the writing of Aristotle, and he used it for electioneering or politicking. And Paul used it just like that. The, the idea of that word is to put oneself forward in a partisan way. It's all about self-promotion. We would say looking out for number one. And he says, do nothing. How much do we do with this as our motivation? What's he say? What's the word? Nothing. We do nothing from selfishness. You got that? So how much selfishness are we allowed? None. And yet how much do we want to live with? As long as everything is about you, what you want, what you need, what you feel, what you crave, then you will never be able to experience complete joy. You will never be able to. I have never met a selfish person that was happy. I've met a lot of unselfish people that were. And then he adds to this, I must honestly evaluate my worth. He says, or empty conceit. You see that? And that's from two words, kenos, which means empty, and doxa, which means glory, empty glory. This was a favorite word of the Greek scholar Epicurus, and the idea was vain glory. The word has to do with the delusion of personal exceptionalism. It's an overblown assessment of your own worth, merit, or value. And I've got to tell you, I think this is at the core. Empty conceit is at the core of so much that's gone wrong in our modern culture. And, And I really think part of it came into play through bad parenting. You know, we saw this fundamental shift in parenting in the 70s, 80s, and 90s away from personal responsibility and aptitude to these inflated expectations. And we see how that produced a false sense of overconfidence built around an overblown use of self-esteem. And so parents taught their children to believe in their own exceptionalism. And I'll never forget, I was in seminary, and I've told you all this story before. Howard Hendricks was, was having trouble with his son, Bill, who couldn't read. And so he went to the teacher and he said, my son can't read. And the teacher said, we don't focus on on that reading. We just want him to feel really good about himself. And Hendricks said, I sort of swallowed my pride and swallowed what I knew and said, she's the expert, she's the teacher. So I went home and Bill continued along and he couldn't read. He couldn't read, he couldn't read. I'm getting frustrated. I go to the teacher and I go, my son still can't read. And she gives him the same line. Well, you know, we just don't focus on reading. We focus more on how he feels about himself. And Hendricks said, did it ever occur to you that he'd feel better about himself if he could read? Parents taught children to believe in their own exceptionalism without training them in any sort of aptitude. And the result is confidence without competence. Did you hear that? Confidence without competence. And now when that generation hits the workforce, they're shocked by failure. How could I fail? I'm exceptional. I've always been taught I was exceptional. 
But now they're saying, I'm below average. How can this be? Well, somebody must be holding me back. It must be someone else causing this problem with me, right? That or this secret nagging fear that they really don't have what it takes. And, and as a result, we've created a generation of discouragement and despair. I saw a headline this past week by the Gallup poll people that said sadness is at an all-time high in the world. Sadness is at an all-time high in the world. Their emotional expenses exceeded their emotional income. Their expectations exceed their experience. And the deficit is debilitating sadness, depression, stress, anxiety, and all those other things. Now, nobody wants to deal with this. Nobody ever wants to go back to the core and say, well, the core could be the way we're raising our kids. The core could be the problem in the family. You know, we see all of these social um, problems that we see occurring, and nobody wants to deal with the fundamental problem, which is the breakdown of the family. It all goes back to the family. When you've got a fatherless home, you've got a serious challenge to bring a child up in a healthy and normal way. And I'm saying that, wives and moms, some of you are single moms, and my hat's off to you, and God becomes the father to the fatherless, but you got to work doubly hard. It is a very difficult thing to fill a kid's head with all of this over, you know, when I was a kid, uh, and I'm not saying America was perfect in that day, but when I was a kid, you didn't talk back to an adult, they'd smack you, you know? Um, Nobody wants to deal with this, but maybe the problem is we think too highly of ourselves. And the Bible warns against this. Look at Romans 12, verse 3. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourself by the faith that God has given us. If I think that I'm exceptional, even when I don't have aptitude, then I'm always going to be confused at my failure but I'm always also going to deal with my relationship as if I were somehow superior to you. And your job is to, I'm the king, you're the servant, your job is to serve me, and that will wreck every relationship, right? Then he says, I must seek humility. Look at verse 3. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Here's a great definition of humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, Humility is thinking of yourself less. So humility is self-less. Humility puts other people first. He said, regard one another as more important than yourself. And then he adds to this in verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. That's such a great practice. Do things without regard to the payoff. Do things for other people for the... Pure pleasure of their pleasure. Husbands, when you rub her back, you're only rubbing her back for her pleasure. You got it? When you do the dishes, stop expecting the Congressional Medal of Honor. (laughs) You did the dishes. You've been getting at least one dish dirty for a long time. It's overdue. Ladies, when he wants to go hunting, quit acting like he's left you homeless. You don't have to go down to the shelter. 
Just in, give him the pleasure of his own pleasure and with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. What a powerful, powerful idea. Here's what a humble person looks like. A humble person treats the waiter with respect. A humble person is surprised by recognition. A humble person is hard to offend. A humble person will applaud your success. Andrew Murray said, the humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when the others are preferred and blessed before him. Here's what I would say. A humble guy will listen to your story and laugh at the punchline. I see it. I know it's true. I know I need to do it. How do I do it? How do I stop the self-promoting? How do I stop thinking so highly of myself? How do I stop letting pride drive my life? Well, I have to divest myself. There's a word, divest. You know what that word means? It means to get rid of junk that you don't need for something more important. When you, when you guys have a garage sale, what are you doing? You're divesting yourself. You've looked at your stuff. Amy and I have a rule. If we haven't used it in two years, we don't need it. Now, we try to be faithful to that rule, but these junk drawers just collect And you look in there and there's old cell phones from like, you know, flip phones are in this drawer. And it's like, "Mm, I might need that. You know, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it's time to throw out the flip phone or the old Blackberry or whatever it is. You know, you're not going to use it anymore. So you you divest yourself of what you don't need so that you can do what you really need to do. And that's exactly what we do emotionally and spiritually. And Jesus is our model. Look at this in verse five. Have this attitude. And notice it's not a feeling. It's an attitude. It's a choice. It's a decision. It's, and, and the word attitude, you have to realize, it, we always tie it to um, a mental thing or an emotional, psychological thing. But the word attitude has to do with a positional thing. Like it's the attitude of an aircraft in the sky. It's the attitude of a boat on the ocean. It's the attitude that you take in in proportion to the experiences around you. That's what that word means. So he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is the same attitude Jesus had, which was in Christ Jesus, who although existed in the form of God, think about that, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I love that word grasp, and I've said this many times. It's used only here in the whole Bible, and it refers to robbery. It had to do with the act of seizing or robbery. It's a thing seized or something that has been seized. In other words, Jesus didn't hold on to heaven the way a thief clings to his stolen loot. Who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself. And there's that word kenos again. Rather than holding on to his majesty, he emptied himself of it, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And I I think this is important. I want to draw this distinction. He did not empty himself of divinity. He emptied himself of privilege. Lightfoot said, he stripped himself of the insignia of majesty. He was still God. Colossians 2 verse 9, for in Christ lives the fullness of God in bodily form. John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And then you've got John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being which has come into being. He was 
co-existent, co-creator. In the beginning was the Word. And then that beautiful line in John 1, 14, and the Word, that same divine Word became flesh. That's what he said. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. How do you even wrap your head around that idea? I mean, we often think about the sacrifice of Jesus being exclusively the cross. But the big sacrifice of Jesus for me was the incarnation. The one who set a billion galaxy in motion now lay motionless as a helpless infant. I can't imagine that. The omnipotent one has confined himself to the presence, the omnipresent one has confined himself to the presence of a human body. And I try to I try to think of an analogy to that. And, you know, I try to think of someone with a tremendous amount of personal power, gravitas, like a Elon Musk, you know. And I'm trying to think, what would the equivalency be that Elon Musk at Tesla has now taken the lowest job he can think of? Maybe he's cleaning commodes at Tesla. And while he's cleaning commodes at Tesla, somebody accuses him of stealing corporate secrets or something, and they drag him out and they wind up murdering him as a result of that. And, or I think of Bill Gates and Microsoft or Steve Jobs at Apple or you fill in the blank, whoever the guy is at Disney or whatever. you know. And, and what I suddenly realized is none of that even comes close to comparing what Jesus did. It's not even close. In fact, there is no human equivalence of the sacrifice that compares to the incarnation. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The one that would judge the universe took on the judgment for our sin. Jesus divested himself of the majesty of heaven and went through the humiliation of being misunderstood and finally crucified. And Paul says, have this attitude in yourself, which also existed in Christ Jesus. So our calling is that example. And that means I have to divest myself of my own expectations. And man, this is way easier to talk about than it is to do. Because there's so much within me that wants to battle for my stuff. Are you with me? It's just in, it's inherent in us. Somebody brings out a plate of steaks. Tomorrow's 4th of July. Y'all are going to have a party. Somebody's going to cook steaks. They're going to bring out a plate of steaks. What do you guys do? You automatically look for the biggest one, Right? Wife tells you to get something out of the fridge. You go over to the fridge. You're not sure where it is. There's Tupperware in the fridge. You pull it out. You open it up. Ooh, that can't be it. It's like meatloaf that's been there for a year and a half. You look at it and you go, what is it? Could be cake. Could be meat. I don't know. At that point, what do you do? You put the lid back on it and you put it back in the fridge, right? Why did you do that? Because you don't want to deal with that meatloaf. Somebody else can do that. I was, uh, there's a ferry between Bolivar Peninsula and Galveston Island. And we always, whenever we go down there, we always take the ferry. And 
And there are these posts that are driven in the ground, almost like telephone poles, and they've been driven in the ground to make kind of a fence of posts. And they're all at different levels. And the seagulls are used to people feeding them off the back of the ferry. So the seagulls sort of gather there, and there's lots and lots of seagulls. And I was watching these seagulls, and I noticed that the seagulls fight for the tallest post. Like if a seagull gets up on a taller post, a bigger seagull will come up and sort of threaten him and he'll fly down to the lower post and that seagull will stand on that taller post. Have y'all ever noticed that? Well, I also noticed that the seagulls tend to poop where they stand. And so the tops of those posts are sort of white, dripping down like a candle of seagull poop. And, And here's the thought that suddenly occurred to me. No matter which post you're on, no matter if you're on the very tallest post, you're still standing in seagull poop if you're a seagull. And I thought, you know, that's sort of like fighting for the tallest outhouse. You know? Like if I get to the very top, I'm still just at the tallest outhouse. And then I start to compare that with who Jesus is and what Jesus surrendered. Max Lucado said this, he he said, remember, heaven is not foreign to Jesus. He's the only person to live on earth after he lived in heaven. And it's embarrassing when you really stop to think about it. Jesus divested himself of heaven, but I can't divest myself of my own outhouse because I'm too busy battling for the tallest outhouse. And yet I'll never know complete joy until I'm willing to do that. That's what it takes. So what will these things, what will these changed expectations produce? Let's walk through them quickly. First, you'll find peace in relationship. Pride is an infection. And pride, that infection of pride will ruin every relationship. That's why Ephesians 5 says, be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. Submission is the only way to build healthy relationships. And when one person is prideful, one person is selfish, one person thinks more of himself than he ought, that relationship will always be crippled. But when you begin to divest yourself of all of that other stuff, and you begin to say, I'm going to make sure this other person's more important than myself, then humility becomes an antibiotic to the to the infection that's in the relationship. And you will find peace in your relationships. Secondly, you'll become more attractive. The funny irony of selfishness is everybody hates a selfish person. I'm just, let's be honest. But the beauty of humility is people are drawn to humble people. So why do we pursue selfishness? You want to be more attractive? You know what's interesting to me? It's how attractive Jesus was. Did you ever notice how many people always wanted to be around Jesus? And he was complete humility personified. He had left the the majesty of heaven. And here he is. They're inviting him to weddings. They want him to be around their house. They're saying, hey, can you come over for dinner? He gets more invitations than he could possibly get. And he's the most humble man to ever walk the planet. Isn't that interesting? You want to be more attractive? Humility will do that. 
It will make you more attractive. Here's the other thing. It'll make Jesus more attractive. We talk a lot about what we can do to reach this generation. We wring our hands about the condition that it's in. We want to braille the culture. We want to do all this and that. But you know, it's really simple. How do you reach this generation? Straight out of the retreat ministry, how are these guys reaching other men? How are these women reaching other women? It's just one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread, right? It comes down to two little words, serve them, serve them. Years ago, I was in Ukraine and they assigned each of us a translator. My, my translator was with me and there was this sort of colorful character that ran the camp that we would go to Ukraine and, and uh, we would have these camps for these kids all summer. 300 or so kids would show up and we'd teach them Jesus, vacation Bible school style stuff during the day, revival stuff at night. And uh, I asked this girl, uh, Caroline, I said, Caroline, what does everybody think of Leroy? Leroy's this eccentric Texas guy. Leroy can't remember anybody's name. He calls that guy the the cripple hand guy and that guy the the blonde girl guy. And, you know, he's got all these names for everybody because he can't he's real eccentric which is you know kind of part of what goes on to go live in Ukraine and run a camp right I said what do they think of Leroy and she said um they like the good things he's done but but they're skeptical I said why are they skeptical and she said they can't figure out where he gets his money I said well that's easy churches and Christians send it to him she said we know that we just can't figure out why I said you question why Christians want to help she said yes I said, that's just what Christians do. She said, what do you get out of it? I said, the joy of helping. The joy of knowing that we're doing what Jesus would do. And by the end of the week, that girl had given her life to Jesus. You make Jesus more attractive. You bring joy to others. When you start serving other people, guess what? They find joy. When you, when you genuinely care about another person and you want to bring joy into their life, you help other people to have joy. But here's the final thing. You feel more joyful. Instead of always carrying this emotional deficit because your expectations aren't being met, you carry emotional capital that translates into feelings of joy because my expectations aren't on me anymore. My expectations are, how can I serve Christ? How can I serve you? How can I make you understand who Jesus is? How can I give to you that gift of grace that was given to me? And let me tell you something. When you want what Jesus wants, he's going to give you all you want. And your emotional capital is always going to exceed your emotional expenses. Your experience is always going to be better than your expectations. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 37, verse 4, it's one of my favorites, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And that word delight in the old Hebrew means to make yourself pliable or moldable. In other words, when my desires conform to what God desires, he'll give me all I desire. And you know what the byproduct of that is? Joy. It's the craziest thing in the world. When we try to get our way, we never find it. When we give it up and we seek what God wants, it comes along for the ride. Jesus had a better way of saying it. Here it is. Matthew 16, 25. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. <laughs> you know, I could have made a much shorter sermon by just reading that verse because that's a concise summation of Philippians 2. So here's the question. Do you really want joy enough 
Are you tired of the sadness and the despair and the sorrow and all that other junk? Are you tired of it enough to deal with your expectations? Are you ready to give it up and let Jesus take over? You ready? You really want to be free? You want to quit singing about it and start living it? There it is. Would you pray with me? Father, we uh, too often live with an emotional deficit. If it were financial, we'd call it debt. But since it's emotional, we'll call it sadness. And there are sad people in this room. There are sad people that can hear my voice. There are sad people listening on, online on our online campus. But Father, you've come to give us joy. Find that we have to give up ourselves. And so I just pray that we would have the wisdom and the strength to relinquish our expectations. And we lay those at your feet and we ask that you deal with them. And, and Father, every time we fall back, that you would remind us again so that it may be two, three steps forward, two steps back, but eventually we stop living for ourselves and we live for Jesus and others. And as we do that, Father, your joy um, begins to be something that marks our life. I pray for those that are without Christ. They live in the land of freedom, but they don't know what it is to be free. I pray today they would find personal freedom by giving their life over fully to Jesus. And Father, we thank you for the power of your spirit and the power of your word in this moment. In Christ's name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.